0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Off Book. Just for you to be aware that this episode contains some strong language and the political opinions of my guest. Normally, by the way, people that do this podcast then end up being booked for Desert Island Discs, like, pretty much immediately. That is my actual
1: (laughs) dream. Literally, the exact level of fame that I want is famous enough to have been invited on Desert
0: Island Discs. Oh, mine is Strictly.
1: No, absolutely not. I just
0: want to this. Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from The Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. My name is Dan Delamotte, and I am so thrilled to be joined by the director of theatre and film, Nadia Latif. Nadia, welcome to Off Book. How are you doing?
1: Hiya. <laughs> this is all I have ever wanted. This is the exact... All of my two years working at The Young Vic, I was like, when am I going to be famous enough to have made it onto Dan's podcast? And here I am. Here you are. Dreams can come true. <laughs>
0: To quote... Jesus? Gabrielle. (laughs) Oh, of course, yes. yes, (laughs) God, let's let's forget everyone's icon. Nadia, um, you were born and grew up in Sudan before moving to this country at the age of 14. What were those first 14 years of your life like?
1: Um, They were hot. No, um, my, my mum is half English and half Sudanese and my dad is from Sudan. Um, so yeah, I spent my first fourteen years living there, but spending my summers here and Sudan was up until very recently in the grip of a increasingly, um, Islamist and erratic dictatorship. Um, and so I had a very, um, binaried childhood of having nearly no culture. Um, at home, you know, there was no cinema, there was no concerts, there was no theatre at all in Khartoum. Um, and then coming to London in the summers, because um, the school holiday in Sudan is very, very long in the summer because it's just too hot to go to school. And so we would come to London for three months every year. And my mum, bless her, I'm the eldest of six, would just like she just she, uh, she's she's an educator herself and she just felt like 3 months was too long to have off so she'd always try and have us like doing something and i took to going to the theater out of pure like um like outrageous intrigue and like it was so unlike anything else um and she used to send me to see like three or four things a week sometimes I see a matinee and an evening show on a wednesday
0: um, Different shows, though I guess. Yeah, <laughs> it
1: depends. I was very keen, uh, and um, and you know that's that's how I spent my my summers. We watched a lot of film in Sudan. We did a lot of kind of like you know recording things on VHS in England and then bringing them back to Sudan. Um, and so that kind of I think explains my dual loves of of theatre and film. Although actually when I like, I decided I was going to be a director very young, which is really weird. You know, like in, like, kids, like, copy books, where it's like, you know, draw a picture of what you want to be growing up. Like, I was that kid. who <laughs> <It> was like, <laughs> I want to be a director. It's like, you don't even know what that means. Yeah, but it sounds really good. Um, And I don't know why. I think it's just that I'm bossy and controlling, and um, that's basically what directing is, isn't it? But no, no it's not. Um, And um, so I, I never wanted to do anything else, really, at all. Um, I had no interest in being an actor. I'm always really... Um, intrigued, not, not judgmental of, um, by directors who were like, well, obviously, everyone wanted to be an actor, and then you understand that what you want to be as a director. And I had absolutely no desire, mainly, I think, because, um, you know, I was a very fat, not particularly attractive young person, and I was like, I don't know where you get the confidence to wanting to put yourself on stage from. Um, but also, I think, even at a young age, and particularly, I think, because I was so, I was a massive reader. I was like, I wanted to make things. I didn't want to be part of someone else's making of it. Um, And I think that's what brought me to a place of new writing, actually, because I was like, power is in, to my mind, writing stories down and telling them. Um, And actually, I was like, I don't want to be the performer of that. I want to be the the vessel (laughs) of the story in a more significant way than that, which is no offence to actors, but I think it is something that they often feel as like not having that creative autonomy. And what I wanted... Maybe unsurprisingly for growing up, you know, in a dictatorship was autonomy, just the ability to do whatever I wanted, um, which may explain some of my romantic choices.
0: <laughs> On Desert Island <laughs> <laughs> Um It seems quite unusual to me for you to come to London every summer and then return to a dictatorship.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that was the, that's the experience of quite a lot of privileged um kids in Africa and, and, and um, the MENA region just because, you know, you've got the financial ability to do that. Do you know what I mean? It's a, it's a pretty well-trodden um, path. And, and and the only reason I really came to England at age 14 was for education. My parents realised that the education I would get in England was vastly superior to anything that was being offered in Sudan at the time. But actually, my some of my younger siblings didn't. They didn't come leave Sudan until... Um, they were 18 because schools got a lot better and and now we have one of the youngest democracies in the world and, you know, Britain is in the thrall of a Tory government and Brexit. (laughs) And I'm a little bit like, the whole go home thing that they shout at you in the streets, that's beginning to sound quite appealing. (laughs) Maybe I work at home. Oh, my God. But there is something, I think there's something quite important in growing up in two places, which is when I meet black British people, As in people who have only ever known, um, Britain as an experience, I don't envy them because I think minority blackness is pretty bullshit. Do you know what I mean? I think it's really hard. I think it is a, is a really tough, almost psychosis to bear. And it's not one that I do bear because I grew up black in a black country. I grew up in a country where, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's huge problems of tribal, you know, tribalism and colourism, but fundamentally there was not a white black antagonism. Do you know what I mean? You're like, being black is beautiful. Being black is great. You can be powerful and black. You can be poor and black. Do you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't the negotiable. And then you come, you know, to London and suddenly you're like, what's this minority life? This is horrible, you know, and, and what is racism? And what does that mean? And, you know, I went to a very privileged um, boarding school in Brighton and kind of didn't criticise being surrounded by whiteness because of that. Like, I was like, yeah, this is a white powerhouse. Like, I get that. And then I went to university, you know, and I went to UCL, and did an English degree and I was like the only one of very few black students on my degree. And again, I didn't question it because I was like, this is what privilege is, is having to deal with being a tiny minority or a token. Um, and it wasn't actually, and you know, I went to drama school, I was the only black director they'd ever had. Um, so it actually weirdly wasn't until I came out of institutions which I really wrongly thought had to have um that kind of structure built into them, like I now think that's an absolute nonsense. But at the time I was still sort of so grateful to be in them, I mean, I was like, well, you know, I'm just gonna have to suck it up and, you know, be used to being the only black person. It wasn't until I came out where I was like, that is all a bloody nonsense and we should rip all these things down. (laughs) Um, Because I just think that I was like, in my head I was like, this is a white country, maybe it belongs to them. And the longer I spent in London, I was like, no, it's not. And the history that I've been taught about this place is all wrong it's all wrong and actually I was I remember coming to school here and when I was in Sudan I was learning the history of Egypt and Mexico and China and Zaire and South Africa and then you come to England and I was really good at history actually like history was my jam and um, and it's just England Germany and Russia for four years like you know I did an A level and everything and I was like oh huh <laughs> okay um oh the rest of the world doesn't exist to you because you need to teach white supremacy at a really fundamental level. You need to teach that the only history worth learning is the history of white colonization, really, or, you know, European antagonism. And I always thought, like, you know, I'd been learning the history of India when I was in Sudan, and I came here and I'm like, are you guys not even gonna teach the bit where you, like, aced colonialism, mm-hmm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I mean, you look pretty good in that story, do you know what I mean? And then there's this bit, well we took over half the world. Mm-hmm. You're not even going to tell your own colonial history Mm. where you're... Oh, no, because you don't tell stories where you're the bad guys. You don't tell stories where Mm. actually millions of people die Mm. and it's because of decisions that were made in Whitehall Mm. because then this whole tiny island would... You know, its whole sense of superiority and of a, like, weird gentleman's superiority, right? There's always this thing that, like, America is the big bad like, butch idiot, and we're sort of genteel. And I'm like, I feel like if we taught history honestly, we might feel very differently about that. Also, it was Brits that went to America in the first place. And
0: Britain that invented concentration camps and used them in Africa.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, But that's not, you know, that's not a version of History to Teach because I think that, you know, civil unrest on the streets would seem pretty minor, all things considered, (laughs) do you know what I mean? And I think we would teach about you know, violence very differently. If we go, this is a country founded on violence and founded on some of the
0: most unthinkable violence in the world. We literally wrote the book on it. So were you ever an other in Sudan because of your quarter Britishness? What were the differences in in how you you were treated in London and Sudan? Yeah,
1: I was, I was. Because in Sudan, um, you know, Arabic is not my first language, English is um And I'm, you know, a little bit light-skinned as well. And so I had, you know, and I come from, a, a, luckily, from a very privileged background. So those are all things, I don't mean working against you, but things that separate you out in the best way possible in the way that privilege should separate you out. Do you know what I mean? I was like, yeah, I have things that other people don't have. But I also grew up um not at all religious um, in a country that was becoming increasingly religious. Uh And that was not my experience in my childhood. You know, my childhood you know, the fact, you know, alcohol was banned and, and um, promiscuity and all those things which are kind of atypical of conservative um, countries, um, it didn't feel like religion was something that you had to subscribe to. And the further along we got, it just got more and more extreme. Um, and, you know, my entire family couldn't be less interested in religion <laughs> if they tried. And so that was always a thing, you know, things like Ramadan and not fasting and being like, It is a considered decision I have made to not fast because I don't believe in it. Um, But also I think it gave me a real understanding of religion and culture and what those two things mean together. And that you may not believe in religion, but you do believe in culture. And so I respect the right, I will always respect the right of people to practice what they want if it's important to them and their culture and, and it doesn't harm anybody else. But that doesn't mean you have to subscribe to it. But not subscribing to it doesn't mean you have to tear it down. Um, which is I think the irony of I think some of the work that I made, which may be touched on Islam later in my life, and the kind of assumptions people therefore make, and you know it's it's super super complicated enough. um but when your own family contains like a huge ranges of um sets of beliefs that you just have to accept that. You're somewhere on the scale that's different to other places, and that's fine.
0: And then in this country, when you went to boarding school and, and um, drama school, how did you make sure that you didn't assimilate as the one person of colour there? Or did you think at that time that perhaps assimilation was was integration?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people lie about like being woke out the womb, um, and I don't think it, I don't think it can ever be like that. I think it's a process of um, trying stuff and regretting it, and then going that probably wasn't for me. And I I, don't, I wasn't you know this tiny anarchist at a very young age because how many 14 year olds are do you know what I mean it's not until you get this like terrible esprit d'escalier don't you where you're like oh man that thing that I did like 15 years ago I probably shouldn't have done that that was bullshit do you know what I mean like that thing where that teacher said that I should have argued with them because he was talking mm. nonsense Um and I think that that's why a lot of people I know um, carry around so much psychological baggage because actually what they're full of is the kind of regret of not knowing that they should have spoken out and realising that actually they've absorbed a huge amount of pain and prejudice that they needn't have. But like that's what becoming an adult is, right? Is that you suddenly turn around and you're like, wow, I have a set of standards about how I want to be treated and how I want others to you know, be treated by me. And actually that has not been something that I have always felt. Do you know what I mean? So I'm sure that my university... Life was full of all sorts of r- microaggressions that, frankly, I didn't really see because I was just like, you know, like a shark, like constantly moving forward, you know, mainly trying to like read loads of books and like kiss boys and drink loads. And is that what sharks do? That is exactly <laughs> what sharks do. So I think I, I probably did assimilate too much. And then there was a process of like retreating out of that and, and rediscovering myself, which really didn't happen until after drama school when I was freelancing. you suddenly have that quiet for a moment in your life where you're like, oh wow, it's just me, there's nobody telling me what to do or think for the first time in 23 years or whatever it is, which is, you know, how long was an in education for? Um, and that started, you know, and then to be thrust into the <laughs> nearly all white world of, of theatre, yeah, it's a lot. I think, I honestly think it's not until the last sort of five years that I've actually been sort of proudly black. And I mean, I was always proud of my blackness, but you know, that thing about being like, yeah, it is the word I put first about myself. I am a black woman, and that is okay. And I know, and I know what that means for me. Um, what does that mean for you? Um, it does not mean non-white, which is I think what a lot of people sort of take it to mean. And also, I'm very specific about black. Like, I don't subscribe um, to the use of the word people of color. Um, other than if you're talking about people of different ethnicities and you want to come up with a collective term for them, right? Be- you know, I would still argue that you should be specific and be like, that is a group of black, brown, Asian, you know, whatever people. Um, and I think that if you are black and you're comfortable calling yourself black, you should call yourself black. Um, because it's n nothing to be afraid of. It's quite the opposite. Something you should be hugely, hugely proud of. And actually what it means is to be part of a global majority. Um, that's what, you know, that's what I mean about the whole thing about coming to this country and black being attached to, um, minority politics. And I'm like, that's the con. That's the con of the white supremacy of culture is going like, oh, but you're a minority here and we all make you feel cut off from other black cultures around the world. And, and actually for me to call yourself black is to say I am part of a global black culture, which brings together people of different nationalities, different. Uh, religions, different um, groups of people to say, yeah, we are black. That is, that is a, a huge bonus to us is to be black and to be part of ancient, rich cultures. Do you know uh, what I mean? And and we own those. Those those belong to all of us.
0: Um, and it's not your job to school white people about that.
1: Yeah, it's the last thing <laughs> I want to do. Do you know? what I mean? I'm always uh, I'm always amazed, but I just think it comes down to education all of it all of it comes down to education my program of understanding you know my my reprogramming my brain to understand myself was about undoing the things that i had been taught at school and reteaching myself a different set of histories and literature you know like i remember when i um finished university and i looked at my bookshelf and i realized of course that there wasn't a single writer of color that i had been taught in you know in university or in school and that was not the bookshelf I'd grown up with at home. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to lie to you and be like, oh, yeah, I came out of the womb reading Simon Rushdie. <laughs> um, like, you know, i film my most excited about this Christmas is Little Women, <laughs> because I weirdly loved girls' fiction. Do you know what I mean? All that. Anne of Green Gables, Little House on the Prairie. Like, I love that crap. Um, and so it's not that it shouldn't have a place in your life, because it could, but it's about cognitive diversity isn't it it's about like yeah you can read like you know i love dickens there's nothing (laughs) (laughs) that wasn't a joke i do love charles dickens but like you should love charles dickens as well as loving the work of alice walker or you know what i mean like it's about that you should have like this huge community of writers speaking to in your head Uh, and i'm always amazed by like the first thing i look at in somebody's house is i go to their bookshelf and i'm like how many books you read that written by women how many books you read that were written by queer people? How many books you read that were maybe not written in English first? Do you know what I mean? That are in translation, um, because I think that sort of tells you about what somebody's like knee-jerk response to the world. How is. many Mister
0: Men books do you have? How many
1: Mister <laughs> Men? I actually do have at least five Mister Men books. Um, my brother got me a. Uh, Mr. Man book that he'd like had um, personalised and it said um, Nadia Miss Bossy. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> I was well, like, mm, oh, thanks.
0: <laughs> Rewinding a little bit at uh, drama school, you had an incredible mentor, Bill cool. Gaskell, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I actually only applied to one drama school. Um, I was at UCL and everybody else was having that like second year panic about like what am I going to do with my life, and I was like, I'm going to go to RADA. And they were like, huh? And I was like, yep. Uh, and, uh, and the reason for that is that my parents, when when we came here in the summer, they have a flat near Victoria. And so our local theatre was the Royal Court. Um, I mean, I went to all sorts of theatres, but like technically that was the nearest theatre to us. Um, and so I saw like new work, and therefore I saw stories that were certainly more interesting to me, if not necessarily more relevant, but certainly things where I was like, you don't have to know anything about the canon of theatre and I'd never studied theatre and like I did like theatre GCSE but like what is you know I'd, I'd never really read like the great kind of European classics or whatever so whenever anybody like brings up Strindberg now I'm a little bit like Strind who? <laughs> you know I, mean? <laughs> I know a couple maybe um, and so I felt like at the Royal Court like you didn't have to pass an entrance exam do you know what I mean it was like you just turn up and be surprised about what the play was about so the reason I applied to RADA was that Bill Gaskell taught on the course and um I wanted to be a Royal Court director, and he was the former
0: artistic director of the he, Royal Court. Yeah, so he had been
1: uh, the artistic director that he directed, you know, like Edward Bond plays back in the day. I just was like, that to me, and also I think the, the whole thing of like the in-your-face writers and, and working-class writers at the time, and and but also somebody who was hugely steeped in the classics. Um, and I didn't know much about him as a human being, <laughs> but I just was like, that's what I want, in that kind of like the outrageous way that young people think that they're entitled to everything. Um, do you know I mean? and, and, and I got in. I don't know how I got in.
0: Didn't I think... only two people get in?
1: Yeah, it's two people every year. It was an amazing course, and they don't do it anymore. And I'm gutted because there are no training opportunities like it left for directors, really. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it was me and one other guy called Davey Overend. Um, and we had an amazing year where you did like we had to do loads of the actor training which is great because it made me a, a director who was interested in the actors process and actually how an actor creates a performance uh, and then you had to like all your evenings and weekends were spent doing and um, directing kind of like scenes and um doing life drawing and doing design you know it was it was amazing it was the most amazing year of my life um and bill and i struck up a very very dear friendship and we stayed friends for 10 years um, until he died in 2016 um and uh, at the time of his death we had played over eight hundred games of Scrabble. Just to <laughs> put it into perspective. Who won? He did by yeah. thirty-eight games. I like to think <laughs> that he died only so that I wouldn't beat him. because <laughs> um, I was catching up with him. But um but he was he was a, a huge part of my life and, and you know, when I was at like my most unemployed, we wouldn't necessarily talk about plays. Sometimes we would just, you know, shoot the shit or watch a film or, or whatever. But there was something about it being really reassuring to be like if I was ever in a bind I could have asked him and he'd he'd come and see everything I did um, and you know it would be a good result if he didn't snore his way <laughs> so that was him letting you know very quickly mind <laughs> no you if he stayed that was quite a good thing but he would always then even if he did fall asleep he'd be like I remember he had this recurring thing where he used to be like the acting is amazing you know brilliant very sensitive performances you've got or he'd compliment the design and then he'd just be like but, of course, you don't understand the use of space. <laughs> and I'd be like, well, that sounds pretty fucking fundamental, mate. What do you mean? And so then we'd, like, reenact every scene in the play using, like, spoons and forks and cups like on his... You know, we'd clear his kitchen
0: table. Like and, explaining the offside rule.
1: Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> and he's like, so you did this, but to think the meaning of the scene would be changed if you had done this, and it? And you were like... And it was this awful thing of going, he was always right. He was never... Do you know what I mean? And that's what we're all doing right we're all just like doing this thing of improving ourselves and our understanding and and in a way uh <laughs> i really wish you'd seen fairview because one of the things i was most interested in was the use of space and about changing meaning through bodies in space um and and, and in a way i think my work up until fairview had be- had become um not in necessarily increasingly minimalist but had certainly become um maybe, like, a bit more expressionist, like, a little less interested in realism. Um, I think because I was trying to, like, purify down to a sense of space without objects. Uh, and Fairview is the opposite of that. <laughs> it's a house. <laughs> and so, in a way, it was a real test of, like, you know, I just so poo-pooed, like, plays that had sofas in them uh, for such a long time. And here You it was, can't poo-poo on the sofa. Don't though, poo-poo yeah. on the sofa. <laughs> it was very expensive and very nice, and we all wanted it after the show's done. Don't poo-poo on the sofa. But, um... Yeah, so I often think about what you'd have um what you'd have thought. But and I also think that it's made me um try and push myself to like a flexibility as a director. Like really don't get stuck with a house style. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like don't be that guy where they think they know, not enough like desire to provoke or surprise people, but A bit like you know, every artist, every fine artist went through periods. You know what I mean? A blue period, a cubist period, whatever. And it's like you should probably be doing that. You should probably find totally different ways of expressing yourself. So, so you don't have a style? I don't think I do have a style. I think, I think, I think. Partly, if you're if you're a director of new writing, and I am, it's it's all I've ever done. You have to be the vessel for the writer's vision, and that means. I think personally putting your ego second and going actually what is it that the play needs Bill always used to say your job is to get the play to tell you it's secret and so everything you do about you know design and casting an idea has to be about trying to and it's not as simple as just asking the writer because actually the answer they give you may not be the play's secret and and so in a way you have to change your style Um, to suit the plays that you do, or you could just choose plays to suit the style that you want to give yourself, but I don't think that's very interesting. Um, You know, and actually trying to push yourself to understand. Sometimes I think it's more about what your directorial gaze is. Like I think you could probably, if you watch all my work go, there is an opinion at play here, but it's not necessarily a style. It's, you know, it's probably fairly scathing about like white patriarchy. (laughs) And so you like may never see like a white man like centralized in one of my plays but that's not a that's not a start having said that like I've always you know there's part of me that's always wanted to do go like I could do Julius Caesar about white men because it's a play about how awful and violent white men in a vacuum are and like I kind of agree with that like but yeah my all white male version of Julius Caesar would not be the same as somebody else's because I have a particular set of feelings about the white patriarchy Um, so yeah no I don't think I have a start I mean you know Bill's thing used to be style is who you work with, and I think that that's kind. Of, I've retranslated that to be who make work, who makes work matters. Um, it matters to me that the team in Fairview are men, women, non-binary people, Asian people, Black people, Brown people, Muslims, immigrants, Europeans. That matters because in telling the story that we're telling othering is very important understanding what it means to be othered what it means to be put on view uh, and what it means to be looked at differently to your white cis counterparts is really important and i think you can't fake it and so even though none of us really have the same experience as the characters in the plays we do have empathy because we have lived experience of othering um and actually i think that i I always get really you know people woof on endlessly about diversity on stage but diversity off stage is what matters to me more because you need cognitive difference you know you need people coming from different experiences and going and that's what style is is going my style is getting the right team of people together for each show and this you know group of people might not look like the group of people that I do next because actually it may be more interesting for me to work with people of Scandinavian and East Asian origin because there's something about what their cultures do that's really interesting to the story we're trying to tell but I think it's that flexibility i you know i know that there's a kind of counter-argument that working with the same team for people all the time you know you develop a language and you push yourselves and that's also like super super interesting but i think i'm more interested in like i don't understand the point of art if it's not to help you push your experience of understanding the world um, you know, no navel gazing here. <laughs> but um, and actually, I want to learn about other people and other experiences. And sometimes I want to shut up and not be the most important person in the room, and just be like, "You tell me." Um, so no, I have no style, and I'm a huge charlatan, but I'm a very good people person.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll return to Fairview in a little bit, but I first want to talk about when I first came across you, which is um, during Homegrown, the play that you were due to direct I but was. then didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk to us about that?
1: And it's funny because that's how me and Omar O'Kari met and, you know, that was five years ago. And um, we've worked together ever since and had uh, loads of excellent experiences, but it did start with like, the worst mm. thing ever. Is uh, it the worst
0: professional thing that's happened yeah, to you? Yeah, and
1: bar none. Like, we still sort of don't talk about how tough it was, um, just because it kind of broke our hearts, actually. Hong was a play that uh, the National Youth Theatre... Commissioned Omar and I to make in 2015, which was about the um radicalization of young British Muslims to go and join ISIS, which was very much the kind of story du jour at the time. And it, and it should be said that we were incredibly skeptical about it at the beginning and didn't want to do it because it felt like they'd bust in the only two Muslims they knew. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But we kind of talked about it. And we were like, do you know, what? we could just do our own thing and it could be like really really cool. And also, you know, when is anyone ever going to ask us to make a play with like 150 young people? Uh, and so we kind of set ourselves that creative challenge of like what it means to actually make large scale work. Um, so it was a, you know, it was a play set in a school. It was actually five simultaneous plays. Um, not that anyone ever found this out. <laughs> um, set in a school with a cast of 150,
0: like a promenade piece. It was site specific. So when were the first warning signs that uh, this play was going was to be pulled?
1: we originally had a venue in Bethnal Green and that venue withdrew because um, of everything that happened with the young girls that left from Bethnal Green and Shamima Begum. Um, they felt understandably quite anxious about presenting a story about radicalisation, no matter what its messaging was, in um, Tower Hamlets. We were banished from Tower Hamlets. <laughs> um, and we ended up in a, in a very nice school in um, Swiss Cottage. Um, so I guess maybe that was the first warning sign that certainly arms of the state would be interested. Um but it, yeah, it was in a production meeting in the first week when uh, the producers um revealed to us that they'd had a meeting with the police and that the police had advised certain measures, um including plainclothes policemen in the audience, um kind of police patrols throughout rehearsals, a sweep by the bomb squad. I <laughs> mean and I was just going, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Omar is much more like I saw what was coming, and I was like I was too busy directing a play with 120 actors, <laughs> not it frankly, and so I, you know, and I did to my to my detriment. I just kind of like ploughed on and didn't look at the warning signs, um, and then I think it was the beginning of our third week of rehearsals. So we were like 10 days away from opening. Um, we just got an email. We got an identical email, like an all out <laughs> to hmm. the creative team, um, sort of say the show's been cancelled. You'll all be paid in full. Do not come and collect your stuff. We'll send it to you. Um, you know, let's debrief next week. Wow. And we were like, we've been working on this for seven months. What are you talking about? We've been writing it nearly constantly for seven months, um, and we never, we never got a meeting with them. They never, they never spoke to us again after that. Um, but the truth is, we still don't know what happened. Um, you know, and there have been freedom of information requests. There's been all sorts of um, pretty unsatisfactory investigation, um, which, you know, comes down to um, where that fear came from, the language they used about us. Um, you know, you haven't lived until you've been called an extremist. Um, but, you know, it came down to fear. It came down to... Fear Fear for what? I think a lot of cultural institutions love the idea of... Um, programming provocative work and you can't see this but I'm doing Uh, (laughs) you know speech air quotes air quotes Um, they like the idea or they like the idea of working with provocative artists and let's look at the intersection of black and brown artists being called provocative Um, but actually when you go this is you know it was it was the subject du jour and you have two Muslims who do not have um, necessarily the most apologetic views about that and really the play um, is about um you know, that young Muslims leaving to join ISIS may be affected by the, the culture of the community around them, which, and we have communities that are full of racism, Islamophobia, misogyny, um, poverty. Do you know what I mean? So, actually, if you are a young Muslim girl in Bethnal Green, maybe some of your reasons for going are c- kind of community wide ones of, of disaffection, you know, and actually people feeling like they that it's the best option for them, not the worst and that was not a popular view, as it turned out. Um But I think that they were just afraid of actually entering the debate, of having to... You know, it's like a little bit like, you know, the BBC and the whole, like, we're impartial, we have no side. I'm like, of course you do, we're individuals, we have opinions, <laughs> we we take sides, do you know what I mean? And we're like, and this is just our side, and we're really comfortable and confident with it being our opinions, but you want us to present a kind of BBC News version of everything being balanced. The world's not fucking balanced, <laughs> do you know what I mean? This is not a balanced debate. Um So, yeah, but, you know, I guess actually one of the proudest days of my life was, and actually the point in which I kind of re-entered theatre is the day we published it, which was nearly two years after that. So (laughs) it was a pretty bleak interim. Um, And actually one of the great things about Fairview is that Donna Banya, who plays Keisha in Fairview, was also in Homegrown. Oh, amazing. (laughs) And so in a weird way, Mm we, and she was in a play for me at the RSC as well. So I sort of feel like she's one of the most significant um, sort of creative relationships in my life because we've had like literally the worst of times <laughs> and the best of times but you know god bless that cost and a lot of us are still very close because you know they worked pretty much any time we asked them in the two years and we had no money and we would just you know spend evenings and weekends like continuing to develop the work and you know putting it into script form and a lot of them wrote a lot of it Do you know what i mean that's what we'd been doing um and they're all listed in the in the in the text you know to give them thanks for that and um, so I'm really proud that people can go and buy it and read it for themselves and they can hate it they can love it they can think it's offensive as hell they can think it's boring as hell (laughs) So is
0: it an act of censorship what happened? Yeah I think so
1: Um, I I do think so and it's been included in like numerous like academic articles and exhibitions about censorship but to me censorship always sounds quite grand or maybe not grand maybe like distant Um and I'm like it wasn't that it was a group of people getting silenced do you know what I mean like it's, it's not some like grand political idea it's saying to a group of people you are not good enough you are not good enough your work is not good enough um, you know, w- you do not deserve to take up space.
0: So censorship, is it always a bad thing, though? Because I think of organisations such as Index on Censorship mm-hmm. who they themselves can be critiqued for providing platforms for what other people would call bigots, and mm-hmm. bigotry and, you know, for instance, um, transphobia. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so is there an argument, perhaps, that sometimes silencing voices isn't necessarily a bad thing?
1: Yeah, I have a very complicated relationship with that... Um question because of that um my um my cousin um was involved in the um protest at the whitney a few years ago about um, houston (laughs) 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 i wish my god (laughs) uh no the whitney in new york about um there was a piece of art that was an um kind of impressionist painting of the um body of Emmett till in his casket by a white artist um And um, my cousin, who is a a woman of colour, wrote a public letter demanding that that painting be taken down and never sold um, because she was sick of white people profiting off black pain. And it got however many hundred um, signatures. And she asked me to sign it and I had a really long reckoning with myself and I was like, I cannot because what is happening to that woman is what happened to me. And as much as I agree with you and I am sick of white people profiting off of black people's pain, I can't support the censoring of another artist. Like, And actually, in the end, she just agreed that she wouldn't have a cellar I mean, doing, and it was sort of, uh, I guess, a compromise, um was reached. And, you know, when you've got a prime minister who calls black people pickaninnies, and you go, in what other universe would that be acceptable? In a workplace or an education space, or even in a social space, it shouldn't be. But, you know, the needle has moved so far in this stage, that I'm not sure, like, which way is up anymore. I'm a bit, like cool so what is good and what is bad Um, I mean I personally can have the privilege to kind of just go I will choose my way through the world in order to avoid those things but that's because I have you know, I have a certain set of experiences that enable me to kind of be like huh I know who that person is and they're like a massive bigot X, Y and Z and I think there's something really scary about the idea of particularly to me university students who maybe don't know the world yet and haven't kind of formed their opinions necessarily of it yet suddenly being like you know why does Casey Hopkins do talks at universities mm. do you know, or Ann Coulter in America? Mm. I'm just like, uh, what what set of beliefs do you have to have in order to be considered no good? But or is that the you know is that the way to do things? I don't know. I don't understand why it's fun to go and listen to big Gone are the days
0: of the experts you yeah, know, that's exactly. what Michael Gove thinks Yeah
1: exactly but we hate experts and we love people who say dumb shit that we can yeah. feel good about hating but I'm like yeah you're still paid money mm. or time <laughs> to listen mm. to that dumb fuck yeah. <laughs> so I don't get it I mean I, I would go through the world's in a much quieter way, if I could, just because I don't want to like burn my energy on other people's fires. <laughs> yeah. Um, but maybe that doesn't make me the best fighter in the world. But
0: also, so not a firefighter. Nothing. So
1: <laughs> God damn it! How um, goes that erotic um,
0: <laughs> Nadia, we must talk about Fairview. We must. We must. Good. Must. Must. Congratulations. That little then. play called Fairview, which is on at the Young Vic uh, at the time of me saying these words. <laughs> um, why were you attracted to that play? When I joined
1: joined as a Genesis Fellow and Associate Director, um, and Kwame said, what kind of plays do you want to do? I said, new plays, but ideally not African-American plays, um, because I was really conscious that I felt like so often the black experience in Britain was being like transmuted through the African-American lens. And I wasn't even necessarily interested in a black British, um, angle, we're just like, there are other forms of blackness, you know. Um and he was like, Cool, 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 alright, cool. And then like two weeks after that he went to America and, and saw Fairview when it was on in Soho Rep and he called me and he was like, you know, I've sent you the script. You need to have read it by the time I got off the plane and I was like, oh, really? And I knew of Jackie's work. I'd seen um we are proud to present at the Bush and really admired it. Um, And I read the play and I was like, oh my God, this is like life alteringly good. And and it's funny, I remember when I joined the Young Vic, um, the head of comms at the time was like, oh, your CV is refreshingly short. (laughs) I was like, thanks? Um, but I think it's because I mean, life's too short to do bad plays. But also, I sort of find doing plays that don't say something essential about myself um not very interesting. Do you know what I mean? And I, I remember the play I'd done before that, which was a play of Somalia Setons at the Royal Shakespeare Company. That had been the last time I'd read a play and said, "This speaks to my soul," and I will care about this until the very last show. Do you know what I mean? It's it's not. It's not casual for me, and I don't think there are any people who are not incredibly privileged white men for whom it's not like life or death whether you whether you make something. Um, and so I read it, and the thing I was taken with was that it's it's so it's so many light years in its political thinking beyond other plays I had read around the subject. Like it's like Jackie Sibblies Drury came back in a time machine from the future to show us all the path we should be walking down, and it was extraordinary, but also. It was funny and it was weird and it um, presented the kind of writer's problem and the director's problem as being the same thing, which is trying to achieve the play in its fullest sense. Um, and so Kwame got off the plane and I was like, and at the time I, did, I wasn't really clear if he was offering it to me or whether he was just going, as my associate, you should read it in case we programme it. And I was like, so uh, it's obviously amazing. Uh, who are you thinking about directing it? <laughs> and he was like you I was like good because I am trying to kill whoever else you are." <laughs> uh, so then I just had to convince Jackie um, which was actually really easy I wrote her a letter um, and, um, and emailed it to her you know I would have sent it snail mail but I was worried that would be like a bit creepy um, and I didn't actually you know she hadn't seen my work so I couldn't be like well obviously you saw my Hamlet um, <laughs> not that I would ever direct <laughs> Hamlet I hasten to add but I just said to her you know look you know Maybe they've thrust us together because we're the only two black kids in the class. But, you know, your play makes me feel more connected to my foreparents than anything else I've read. And, you know, I've always wanted to make black radical work. And I think your play brings me closest to achieving that dream of anything else. And the stars aligned or some witchcraft happened, whatever, and it all, kinda of worked out, but I just think there's there's something for me, particularly because I think I'd spent my time post hangar mainly working in performance art, because I sort of didn't want anything to do with the theatre anymore and was interested in um performance that happened in um nightclub spaces and queer spaces and non traditional spaces and on also activist spaces, um, that actually to me fairview brought the spirit of that work with the formality of theater like it was tricking a theater audience into watching something quite radically political and 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 also something that requires your body to mean something not just your view of things you know so normally you sit in the theater and like most audiences are just like a big floating pair of muppet eyes (laughs) and actually what their body does they think doesn't matter and in fairview it says your presence is what matters. When you bought a ticket, you sort of agreed to be part of a, an experiment in communality. Um, you know, I asked a group of directors, I was workshopping it with ages ago, I was like, could you tell me what the person to the left of you and the right of you looked like in the theatre yesterday? And they all went, no. <laughs> And I was like, in fair view, the only thing I will guarantee—no spoilers—is that you will walk out of the theatre knowing exactly what the person sat to the left of you and right of you look like. Um, and that's amazing. Yeah, that's an amazing thing to have achieved. Um, and I'm really proud of it. And I also think it might mean that I don't make anything else for quite a long time because I don't know how to ever follow it up. Because it was such a—it was such a purity of like the right play. At the right time in the right place and the right people and I sort of feel like the thinking like once you've kind of executed that experiment perfectly you can't do anything less than that do you know what I mean and like I did the whole thing on nobody else's terms with a team of you know young people of different backgrounds most of them had never worked at the Young Vic before most of them had never worked at that scale before none of us had worked in that space before certainly we were pretty short hours we didn't work a single Saturday you know everyone got through it um, kind of um in good health and relaxed, nobody was ever kind of put upon, and it was great, you know, and so actually, to me, um that's it. that's not just it's not the gold standard. It's just the standard now. I like, actually, I will not settle for less than ideal situations <laughs> for making art because that's why I think we're also proud of the show. It's because we actually all made it to the best of our best ability, don't actually're going, you know, we were all respected and we were trusted to do what we do.
0: And we all came out the other end smiling and still quite liking each other. Amazing, incredible. It's, it's a case study in how to make theatre.
1: Yeah, it turns out, like, if you're not a dick, <laughs> and, like, you're consistently not a dick, and nobody else is a dick, <laughs> everything's great. Um, but, you know, and actually I sort of go out into the world now you know, and all you ever hear is horror stories of, oh, I had this job and this person called me this and I'm like, they called you a what? <laughs> In your workplace? <laughs> I just made cookies. <laughs> like, what? Um, and I just think, like, why, why should we ever... None of us are paid enough to be treated like arseholes. Um, so we definitely be, should be getting respect and care and preferably some artistic fulfilment as well. <laughs> and, like, if you're not getting all of those all the time, then burn all theatre to the ground. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, it has to be about people, otherwise what's the point?
0: Well Nadia, how apt that you're dressed as a space person because you are truly stellar um, it's been a delight and a joy, as I knew it would be chatting been, to we've you. We've been waiting
1: for this for two years I've been waiting to get in this tiny hot sweaty room with you for two years and I'm so glad it's been the sticky dream. Well please come back sometimes we have
0: returning people, I'd love you to be one of them.
1: I would I would come back I'd come back and tell you about the event what's it been like outside the young Vic? Well it's less sweaty. Um, I didn't believe you you said it was going to get hot in here, it yeah, really did Yeah. Um, no, it's been a total joy. And, you know, it's weird because this is sort of my last day before heading off to the rest of my life. <laughs> so I'm a bit like, bye, Dan. Thanks, thanks for being the gatekeeper on that one.
0: Well, thank you. I love you. You're brilliant. Thanks, bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Off Book by The Young Vic. For more episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify.